This is Language Made Difficult, a non-pulmonic part of the Specram podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi there. Bill Spruill. Hey. And Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And also joining us again on the program are Jason Wells-Jensen. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and Tim Pouliou. Nice to be here. Welcome back, Jason and Tim. Thanks for visiting with us again. So let's get things rolling with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Why do we always have to start with this? <laughs> because it's the funnest part and it makes people stick around. All right. Go ahead. Humiliation. They love the humiliation. <laughs> <laughs> so our theme for today is boring things. That's ironic. <laughs> That's going to be the funnest part of today's show. <laughs> <laughs> I am bored already. <laughs> That's right. The funnest part is the boring things. I've got three language-related items. Two are true and one is false. And you guys have to figure out what is what, and then we will discuss. Item number one. 18th century Prussian linguist Wilhelm von Humboldt started his career as a Basque philologist, but eventually abandoned the insufferably boring language in favor of more abstract pursuits in the philosophy of language and education theory. Item number two. In 2013, the Scottish village of Dull joined with the city of Boring, Oregon and Blandshire in New South Wales in a trinity of tedium that they called a League of Extraordinary Communities. Item number three. George Lakoff complained in his 1987 book, Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things, about how boring it is to discuss with eager undergraduates, quote, the 22 words for snow in Eskimo, unquote. All right, who'd like to go first? All right, I'll go first, because I have a method this time. I'm feeling like it's foolproof, okay? Okay. I had a problem with this because I believe the thing about Basque, because people who would flee for excitement into wherever it is he went, education theory, is that it? <laughs> Philosophy of language. Philosophy of language, and and whatever theory. that is. People who would flee there for excitement don't understand what boring means. So he could have thought <laughs> Basque was boring. I like number two a lot because it strikes me as a really awesome advertising ploy. And it made me wonder if this sort of thing is going to continue, what hell Michigan, damnation, Nebraska and fire pit Ohio would do if they got together. <laughs> and I really wanted to see that happen. So I like that one. And I believe the thing about George Lakoff, I really do. I just, given that I remembered that only one of these is false, I thought I would employ my method, which is to read these and then walk away and then see which one I can't remember first. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously that's the most boring one. Okay. And the one that I couldn't remember first was number three, the one about George Lakoff. So that is my method. I think it's sound and I'm sticking with it. Okay. You think lies are more boring than the truth? Well, it did distinguish itself as being forgotten first. Therefore, it's different than the other two. Okay. <laughs> Who wants to go next? Well, I'll take a stab at it. The problem I'm having is all three of them sound believable to me. It's when you forget first. That's the deal. That's yeah, but it's kind of like, okay, a Prussian thinking something's boring that's not <laughs> close enough to conquer. <laughs> yeah, they... <laughs> They would tend to lose interest in anything that didn't have annexable minds. <laughs> you know, that's believable. The second one with the Scottish village and so forth, that's exactly what three small towns would do as an ad pitch. And, you know, it's actually kind of a cool one. Number three, I could see George Lakoff complaining about students wanting to talk about a topic that was not George Lakoff. So that would make sense, too. The one I'm going to go for, I think, is I'm going to say number three is wrong, 
because I think Lakoff wouldn't talk about how boring it was. He'd talk about how annoying it was that they were sort of homing in on this idea there are zillions of words for snow. Or the students might not have been actually eager about the 22. They were eager about there being 100 or something. <laughs> okay. Keith, would you like to go next? I, sure, I guess. No, because I think they all sound patently true. And so uh, I... You know, I'm going to be flipping a coin here, but I tell you what, a three-sided, a three-sided coin. coin. <laughs> no, I'm going to flip. Uh, let's see. How am I going to do that? I'm going to flip it six times. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> you flip it three times and the one that's different from all the others is the one you select. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But I don't have a coin with me. So I'm going to guess that Von Humboldt was just a rotten linguist or a rotten language learner or something. And so he really did find Basque boring. And so that's true, probably. And these three communities, if they actually exist, whatever <laughs> alternate universe they actually exist in, they definitely have come up with this advertising slogan. So I think that's true. And Lakeoff? Okay, well, I'm going to go with Lakeoff. I'm going to go with the other two. Uh, I think the reason to say that the Lakeoff one is false is not because Lakeoff actually said this, but because it's not the eager undergraduates who are boring. It's the complaining linguists who are boring. So I'll go with that one as the false one. Okay. Jason or Tim? Yeah, I'm detecting a pattern here. I'm also going for number three. Well, first, I'd like to note, it's interesting that nobody is either choosing or not choosing number three on the basis of having read the book and remembered what <laughs> Lakoff actually... Oh, well, wait. Okay, wait, wait. Let me add. I did read the book, and I don't remember Lakoff complaining. I read it, too, and I don't remember. But that's not necessarily well, saying anything, really. So it was boring, <laughs> and you didn't remember. The book was boring. <laughs> But I'm, it wasn't the most boringest thing I ever read. I'm going to take a similar tack and just sort of gripe about the details of the description of the item. I haven't met that many eager undergraduates <laughs> in a linguistics Aww. course. Oh, I'm like teachers at Berkeley. Because <laughs> I'm only a profess. Uh, <laughs> I'm neither a professor nor a professest. <laughs> but also, again, as one of you already mentioned, the 22 words for come on. Come on, who thinks there's only 22 words for snow in Eskimo? <laughs> so, Jason, it would be pretty boring of you to do what everybody else did. I know, it would. Being boring, that's my jam. Okay. <laughs> Doing what everybody else does, that's very characteristic of me as an individual. Or as a member of a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're sticking with number three? I'm sticking with three. Okay, Tim. Well, I'm going to pick number one because... Although I don't remember that thing from Lakoff either in the book. It sounds like the sort of thing Lakoff would say. I agree with Bill that he would more likely say annoying, but maybe he was thinking in French. And <laughs> that was the same word either way. I can certainly see Lakoff complaining about something. That one makes sense. Number two actually makes sense not only in its own terms, but because this thing about weird small town names is beloved of the Speckgram Puzzle Elves. <laughs> That is very true. And That's if the true. Grand puzzle elves had any part in putting together this question, then <laughs> Oregon and Dole, Scotland are exactly the places that they would have thought of. <laughs> so it's really more based on the personalities involved here that the Lake Off one seems true, the Speckgram Puzzle Elves one seems true, <laughs> and the Humboldt one seems false because Humboldt wrote a grammar of Basque. And <laughs> I don't think he, I mean, maybe it was like someone writing a dissertation and by the time they were done with it saying, I'm really bored to death with this topic. 
But then he went on to write his grammar of Kawi, or start writing it before he died, and do his other stuff. And I don't think he decided that Basque was boring. It doesn't seem like the sort of thing he would have done. So I'm going to say that Humboldt did not say that Basque was boring. He just finished writing his grammar and then moved on to other things. So number one is false. Okay. So let's start with item number two, which everyone agreed was true. It is in fact true that dull, boring, and bland got together in their trinity of tedium. It was reported in The Scotsman in November of 2013. Also, I read The Scotsman regularly, so that one's true. So does Trey. (laughs) Item number three, George Lakoff complaining in his book about the eager undergraduates. I thought for sure that more people would pick this one as the false one because... He used the word Eskimo, and that seemed wrong. Eskimo is not a language. <laughs> the quote. I mean, he quoted, right? True, true. That's the popular meme, the Eskimo snow hoax. Sure, sure. So The great Eskimo vocabulary hoax, which also I was thinking that you guys would think I had substituted George Lakoff for Jeff Pullum, who wrote the great Eskimo vocabulary hoax. No, we knew better. Okay. But in fact, this one is true. No, it isn't. It is. On page 308, he wrote... Possibly the most boring thing a linguistics professor has to suffer at the hands of eager undergraduates is the interminable discussion of the 22 or however many words for snow in Eskimo. This shows almost nothing about a conceptual system, and it is not part of the grammar. There is no great conceptual consequences of having a lot of words for snow. I have an objection. (laughs) You did not read this with the ellipsis in the middle. You left out, or however many. many. I did. However many. Uh, You have changed the text, and therefore this is incorrect. It's not true. (laughs) I heard uh, it. I would also when you read it aloud. <laughs> <laughs> it was phonetically inaudible, like a big pro, but it was there. You pronounced it like an H sub two, though. <laughs> Aren't we up to H sub five at this point? <laughs> For those keeping track at home, cut out the hyperbole tray. It's H sub pi. <laughs> Don't give me that hyperbole rigmarole, Keith. <laughs> And then I was very worried about item number one because I knew Tim would know. Had Tim on the show and he knows these things. <laughs> would he knows know Tim too many things. Wilhelm von Humboldt and his career. So this is false. Though once I made it up, I had to go and research and make sure it didn't appear to be true. And I discovered that Wilhelm's younger brother, Alexander, joined Prussia's Department of Mines but got bored. I'm assuming he got sick and tired and not drilled. And he actually became a famous uh, naturalist. Wow. The Humboldt Current is named for him. Oh, okay. I don't you think know. you should have Tim involved in anything related to trivia. The, so then the Humboldt Squid is named after, indirectly, him too then, right? Because it's named after the current. Is, is that it? right? Oh, interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. I think that was named after I the might have third made it up. Humboldt brother, who was famous for having this sort of quirk of running up to ships and grabbing them and refusing to let go. <laughs> Lord, it's hard to be humbled. <laughs> so speaking of being humbled, oh. let's go to the matter of the scores. We've all been humbled. <laughs> the good news is that the yes. ranking hasn't changed. <laughs> I don't regard that as good news. Oh. <laughs> What are you doing with the guests when we have two guests at once? Are you aggregating them? Yes, they count as two separate instances of guestness. This whole thing <laughs> has been extremely aggregating, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> this whole aggregating rigmarole has yes. been too much. It's not guestness, by the way. It's a guestitude. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I think Tim is the guest and I'm only the gur. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'm only the gur. <laughs> 
<laughs> so <laughs> we have Bill with 42%, Sherry with 46 Keith with 50 the guests holding steady is 55 oh. and I've gone up to 63%. Oh. Well, with this many people, you win automatically every time. So this is never going to become an Olympic sport under your rules. <laughs> it's more like Las Vegas. The house always wins. That is correct. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I'm still having trouble with, you know, Lakoff's claim that perhaps the most boring thing that can happen to a linguistics professor is to talk about this topic with eager undergraduates. His boredom horizons must be very narrow. (laughs) (laughs) You think of something more boring? It's like 20 minutes of... Are all the test questions going to be multiple choice or they're going to be fill in the blank? <laughs> are the multiple choice going to be A through E or A through D? <laughs> Is there going to be a none of the above? <laughs> Clearly the man has never served on any university committees whatsoever. If oh, yeah. Nice. let's. Yeah, I was trying to keep it with students. That's more interesting. Yeah. Committees yeah. are, good Lord, sitting there with Bloom's taxonomy and... I'm sorry that your objectives need a different verb. (laughs) You can't use demonstrate understanding. You have to say demonstrate comprehension. Do keep in mind that this book was written in 1987. So that was before committees were invented. (laughs) Practically. (laughs) He must have gone to a linguistics conference or heard a colloquium by an invited speaker sometime. And some of them are not (laughs) entirely exhilarating. In that case, that would just be in your role as a linguist, not as a linguistics professor. If you're required to attend the colloquium of your department because you're a member of the department, that might still count. Mm. I reckon you sleep through them, don't you, mostly, (laughs) by the time you get to that level? (laughs) I guess if you have tenure. If you have tenure, sure. But your dream could be more interesting, unless it was a nightmare. Ooh, foreshadowing. (laughs) Cue the spooky ukulele music. Is that possible? I want to hear that spooky ukulele theme song before the nightmares segment. I think it's inevitable. Ineptable? Inevitable. Oh, inevitable. Sorry, you lost a syllable there. <laughs> so I think there's actually a problem with the most boring experience of your life because by its very nature, by being the most boring experience of your life, it is singular and therefore interesting. Oh, that's boring. Did you take philosophy, Trey? <laughs> there was a question. Meta, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I calced that from math. Uh, I see. Because there's this notion of the first uninteresting number. And by virtue of being the first uninteresting number, it becomes interesting. I had this problem in chemistry because it seemed to me like if particles were sufficiently random, then they would be kind of all the same distance from each other in the solution. And that would be sort of orderly. Okay, let me try well, again. I have, what, what possibly have missed in my little let adventure me, there? Let me, let me try again. I was thinking of this during the previous episode. There was a conversation that was related somehow, and I can't begin to imagine how now. But I was thinking of this conversation I just had with one of my children about how on opposite day, it's tricky because you try to do everything the opposite. But if you're doing everything the opposite, then that means you have to do opposite day the opposite, which means you have to do everything the normal way. Recursion is a feature of human language, not of opposite day. On Thank Star Trek, you. this is how you destroy the computers or the androids. 
Didn't we have one of these the other day with a couple of episodes ago with uh, multiple stacking negatives, opposite, 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 opposite day? I think it was a, a suffix on frog that meant not frog, and then not, not frog, and then not, not, not frog. Frog indeed. Didn't quite almost not mean beefsteak. <laughs> Something like that. And it was really boring. It just <laughs> turned into a tangled knot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no, I'm afraid not. Oh, oh. <laughs> moving on. Perhaps uh, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. How do you think Mr. Fucking Hulk fit when he first came to the U.S. and discovered what his name sounds like to the Americans? How about Miss Fanny Tickler, who always thought her name sounded rather cute? When she arrived in London and discovered that saying her own name aloud around children might get her arrested. Consider poor Richard Head, who, as a child, could never get the other kids to call him Reggie. They always called him Dick and made him cry. Do you want experiences like these to scar your children? Of course not. No one does. But are you fluent in English, Japanese, Spanish, Korean, German, Russian, Indonesian, French, Italian, Chinese, Arabic, and Swahili? Of course not. No one person can be. These languages are all likely to be encountered by a well-traveled global citizen of the future. You do want your child to be a happy, well-traveled global citizen of the future, don't you? Of course you do. We have turned our years of personal experience as linguists, as computer scientists, and as regular people whose parents made unfortunate choices into an unparalleled service. Send us the name you are considering for your child, and we will tell you in what languages, in what countries, in what cities your child's name will embarrass them. Every employee of the International Name Testing Service has lived with this problem personally and professionally, so your child won't have to. Can you put your trust in us? Of course you can. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Why does she sell seashells down by the seashore? Are rubber baby buggy bumpers really best? Is the six slick sheik six sheep sick? Must sheet slitter slit sheets? These and other questions will not be answered here today. Instead, we're going to look a bit at the linguistics of tongue twisters. The aptly named Stephanie Shattuck-Huffnagel and colleagues gave a poster presentation at the 166th meeting of the Acoustical Society of America entitled, A Comparison of Speech Errors Elicited by Sentences and Alternating Repetitive Tongue Twisters. They looked at two kinds of tongue twisters, and this is important because it made this article significantly less annoying to know this. They had (laughs) sentence twisters of the sort that I think of as being normal tongue twisters, and then they also had word list tongue twisters. And like I said, the sentence tongue twisters are the kind that I prefer. They're an actual sentence that is at least plausibly grammatical, but phonologically difficult. And then these word list twisters are a superset of the say that 10 times fast variety, and they don't really have any grammar or even any meaning behind them. They're just arbitrary lists of words. Beyond some vaguely interesting timing differences and double onset errors, notably that word lists twisters give closer spacing akin to co-articulation, while sentence twisters seem to be more like they have an epithetic schwa in the middle of the double onset, none of that really matters. The big news is that they found a particularly difficult word list tongue twister, and it's so hard to say that many people can't get through it. So here it is, rather slowly. Pad, kid, poured, curd, pulled, cod. Now, (laughs) would anyone like to try to say that a little faster? Yes. Go for it. Pad, kid, poured, curd, pulled, cod. Pad, kid, poured, curd, pulled, cod. You can do it faster. Pad, kid, poured, curd, pulled, curd, pulled. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. <laughs> Who else wants to try? <laughs> Keith? No, thanks. <laughs> Tim? Uh, I don't have the words written down. I can't remember all of them. <laughs> Just make them up. <laughs> uh, pad, kid. Sorry. Good enough. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, my first question is, does this even count as a real tongue twister? No. Because there's no plot, there's no character development, there's no pathos, (laughs) no redemption to be had from the hero's journey. It's not really grammatical. What do you guys think? It's nonsense. 
tongue twisters have to be something. The fact that there's a little plot, a little story, a little image or something is part of what makes them memorable. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine wanting to say them in the right context. But this list of words you cannot imagine wanting to say unless you are eliciting from a person faking a language. (laughs) Otherwise, there'd be no motivation. So, yeah, I'd say, no, this is not a tongue twister. The other thing here is if you use this as a prompt, then I don't think you could talk about speech errors because this is not speech to have people read a random list of words like this. I agree. So what you've produced is not speech errors, whatever else it is. More importantly, perhaps, you have discovered the difference between tongue twisters and a television series. I was just having this conversation this very morning with a friend on Facebook who was asking herself, staying home with her sick child, why on earth did one of the Umizumi team find a crazy skate just lying there? And I said to her, well, look, the point of drama is not plot anyway. It's not about what happens. It's about character development. It's about setting. It's about how the characters respond to the situation. The situation itself has really no value except a framework to hang your character development on. thought you were going to say to hang your characters on. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing that I never understood before is the essence of a tongue twister is the plot. Thank you. That point helps explain what's going on, too, because the description sort of says they thought this was a particularly hard sequence because they said, you know, test subjects couldn't get through it. When volunteers tried it, some of them simply stopped talking altogether. They said, well, if you can say it 10 times quickly, you get a prize. But what they're not telling us is. Number one, what was the prize? If it was candy corn, then it's like, no. No more. Number two, that's so darn boring. Of course, they just stop talking altogether. It's like, what's the effing point? <laughs> what is it with all this rigmarole? Yeah. You know, it's one thing when it's kind of like, oh, here's a tongue twister. We grew up with those, right? Mm-hmm. But it's something else when it's sort of like, here's a word list. Say it fast. Say the word list fast. That's just kind of like, no, give me something interesting to do. And while I'm sitting here looking at the word list, I'm imposing an interpretation on it right now. Right. Pet kid poured curd pulled cod. I have to make curd pulled into an adjectival phrase modifying cod. No, that's oh, not curd how- pulled cod. That's good. No, it was no, the cod no. pulled through curds. No, no, that's not how it goes. And I was also making sense of this because that's the only way I can kind of. And I think that's the reason that you make so many speech errors with it, besides that it's just sort of a dumb string of words. The smart part of your mind is trying to make the story. And the story involves pulled cod, which is sort of like cod jerky or something. And then poured curds, which is disgusting and messy. And then I don't know what a pad kit is, but it frightens me. It's some kind of noodle dish. <laughs> it's some kind of Thai child. Thai Isn't that a kid who's addicted to the iPad? Mm. Oh. No, it's a Thai goat dish. Pad <laughs> <laughs> <Thai> kid. <laughs> so, the whole thing is so frightening that I can't say it. <laughs> Going along the line of what Sherry was saying, I interpret it as a headline, which lets you get away with having less real grammar in there. And it's about how a lily pad child decanted some clotted milk and then yanked on a fish. I need a comma for that. Old God. Yeah. I did the same as Trey. I inserted the comma. 
Although I thought it was a kid who just lived in like a bachelor pad or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he definitely poured some curd and then pulled cod. <laughs> okay, so my interpretation was more syntactically complex, I think. So mm-hmm. I get the prize, right? <laughs> yes. Candy corn. Candy corn you or whatever. You want candy corn you want. I think oh. the thing is, the person who typed it in the article made a typing error because it was so hard to do. It should have been paid kid. It's a three-part serial verb construction. Paid kid, poured cod, pulled, uh, poured curd, pulled cod. I can't even say it reading it with the commas. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I thought it was also interesting. So this did seem to be difficult, right? At least for some people. But there's a real regular pattern to it here. It's PDKD, PDKD, PDKD for the beginning and end of each of the words. And to me, that just fits in their tonguing techniques for trumpet or didgeridoo and other wind instruments where you quickly tongue T and K over and over and you're like tick, 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 tick. And you can do that with the PDKD. And so you get pad kid, poured curd, pulled cod. Almost got it out that time. The L throws you off. Yeah. So yeah, it's just the same thing. Put a cut, put a cut with um, different vowels and liquids in there. I think they could do better. They can make it harder. I'm delighted that you use trumpet and didgeridoo just <laughs> so naturally in the same sentence. There is a reason for that. My dad played trumpet and I played didgeridoo. So you play didgeridoo and you make fun of ukuleles. Well, I make noises on didgeridoo, but I can do the tonguing stuff now. You know, I could have didgeridoo introduction to the next segment if you don't want the ukulele introduction. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the other tongue twisters that I find really does trip me up, and it's saying toy boat over and over again. Mm -hmm. When you start repeating a word over and over again, it strips it of any meaning, and they don't sound right, even if you say them right. But the toy boat turns into toy boit very quickly. Or tow boat. We could all try it. Toy boat, toy boy, toy boy, toy boy. No, I get toy boy. Toy boy. Sounds like some place in New Jersey. I'm from Toboyton. Toboyton. Some place near Dull, Michigan or whatever that was. Boring Oregon. Boring Wisconsin. What was it? I can't remember. I'm from the village of Pord Curd. All the pad kids from Pord Curd pulled cod. See, that's easy if you do yeah, that. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just put in a little bit of grammatical stuff and it's it's all good. Yep. That's really what grammatical things are about. It's just to make it so that the nouns and verbs you know, are pronounceable. Well, you know, the thing that people who are obsessed with grammar in written form often neglect to mention is that most of what grammar is really is pauses and intonation. And obviously one of the purposes of pauses is to make words pronounceable. And so one of the purposes of grammar clearly is to put pauses between phrases to make the words pronounceable. Yeah, that's probably true. Okay. (laughs) Well, if grammar even exists. It doesn't. Sherry tells me it doesn't. It's my midlife linguistics crisis. (laughs) I'm not inviting her to be a guest speaker in my undergraduate class. I'll bring them all to tears. (laughs) It's not. None of it's true. Everything he told you is a lie. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I didn't understand most of it anyhow. (laughs) Your new theory would make it very easy to draw syntax trees, though, because you just have N and then filler, filler, V, filler, 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 all going under a big S. Yeah. I think we did that. That was the BS node. Yes. (laughs) An old issue of Specgram. (laughs) Or you just move the tree over a few spaces and the lines actually connect to the spaces between the words. Yeah. Mm. Let's all have a moment of silence. No one can make any sentences. Or maybe we're all making sentences, but we just made the spaces. And, And see, that sort of works with the notion that, you know, those words... 
they're not grammar. They're just lexicon. <laughs> oh, so if you take out the lexicon, all you have left is pure grammar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And vocal fry. <laughs> <laughs> you get to say like faux deep sounding stuff. You know, it's like look between the words, look in the space between the words. That's the grammar. <laughs> It's looking back at you. <laughs> this is getting scarier and scarier. Uh, Bill, you're the only person I've ever heard breathe with vocal fry. <laughs> it's called wheezing. <laughs> He's been sick. Leave him alone. For okay. months, right? I mean, it seems like. Hasn't it been months? Weeks and weeks. So he and Keith have both been faking vocal fry. <laughs> so I think we will take those deep insights and think about them. In the meantime, let's have a word from our sponsor. Are you tired of looking for informants on understudied languages? Have you gotten yet another tersely worded rejection from language stating something to the effect of everyone knows how the English plural morpheme works? Please stop sending us this article. Worry no more, because the linguadors at Specgram have a solution for you. For a small, one-time donation of a valid bank account or credit card number, we will give you access to our crack team of language specialists who can produce fluent examples of every language on the planet, both real and imagined. Say, for example, you're looking for a sentence with a subordinate clause in Walpuri. Trey, translate I want him to see a picture of himself into Walpuri. I can't even pronounce Walpuri, much less speak it, David. Amazing. And now, how about the town's destruction of itself Chase down and beat Mary with a stick in Piraha. Keith? Well, I don't know what Piraha refers to. Is that, is that one of these languages? And the best made? part is our translations are guaranteed. Whatever translation you receive may be used as hard evidence in any paper and must be accepted by any publication that subscribes to our registration service. Which publication subscribe to our registration service? Oh, if only there were time to tell. So the next time you're stuck on the floor of a phone booth in southern Mozambique with a swollen ankle and a disease American doctors refer to as Willard Rot, think Specgram. If we're not a part of your problem, we can't be a part of your solution. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. And one of the things that I was thinking about today, um, all but only about 30 seconds ago, was what happens if you are suddenly made aware that you're supposed to do something publicly that you hadn't planned on how to do it. And suddenly, not only do you have to do it publicly, but lots of people are going to really be paying attention to it, actually, and not just looking down at their test papers, like they often are when I do something publicly. And, and they might actually have tuned in on purpose. And it's not just sort of a required thing like it often is for me. And what happens if you have absolutely no plan for that? Um, like can happen sometimes. <laughs> and you end up with only rigmarole to say and then awkward, terrified pauses in between all your words. And the spaces between your words are not the friendly, the friendly welcoming spaces. <laughs> the dark, clutching pits of uncertainty and terror. Um, which brings me perhaps to the topic of our next segment, ironically, which is academic nightmares. And I thought we would just take this moment to be together, one with the other, and share some of our academic nightmares. I've sort of shared one of mine already. But I do have another one in reserve because the longer you are in academia, interestingly, the more you accumulate, which does not mean, grad students, that you should back away from academia because business would be worse. 
And <laughs> there are many, many, many things that could, in fact, be worse. So, you know, the academic nightmare. So this can be partly a comforting thing, really, if I if we spin this correctly, so that we can tell everyone not only what they can expect ahead of them in academia, but, you know, learn how to interpret it and how to be comforted by your... Uh, or mocked. I suppose that's also remotely possible in this crowd. <laughs> when you reveal your inner trauma and nightly turmoil to one another. So I've sort of given you one of mine. Is there anyone who else? So, okay, wait, another nightmare is that you say, I've just shared something about myself. Would any of the rest of you like to share? And here, the space is between the words instead of <laughs> <laughs> lots of people volunteering willingly to go next. Like that! <laughs> <laughs> You have nightmares? <laughs> I'll help you out here because I'm nice. <laughs> the guests are always nice. I have a I have a hypothetical nightmare. This hasn't been a real nightmare that I've had in my sleep yet, but I can imagine it. It's sort of one of those, wow, this would be a nightmare kind of things. When I started thinking about real linguists or even real conlangers actually reading the novels that I've been conlanging for and realizing how little conlanging I actually did to get that beautiful paycheck and my name in the acknowledgments. <laughs> I don't even have, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> I don't even have any sounds that aren't in real Spanish. <laughs> my fake Spanish. So you've got a mild case of imposter syndrome here? Yeah, I guess it's a mild case because I haven't actually woken up in a cold sweat about it yet. Oh, it's nice for you that it's only a mild case. So far. <laughs> so clearly we need to plant subliminal hints through the rest of our discussion for you to have a full-blown nightmare. <laughs> Try to make it worse, yeah. 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 It's cathartic. Yeah. If you survive. <laughs> yeah. So I had one of these just, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, and it wasn't exactly academically related. It was fieldwork related. So it's one of those ones where you go to the bus station to get on the bus to go back to the capital city to catch your flight out of the country. And you realize as you're getting on the bus that the flight is leaving in five minutes and it's a four hour drive. So you're going to miss your flight out of the country. It's that terrifying moment of realizing you might be stuck there forever. <laughs> because there will never be another flight ever. <laughs> <laughs> or you might never find the capital city again. <laughs> Any number of things could go wrong. It is a dream. I thought that all your consultants were just making it up. <laughs> <laughs> they were all just faking. You ever have that nightmare where you're writing example sentences on the board with auxiliaries, and then you suddenly sort of, for some reason, think those aren't the right auxiliaries. Those are homonyms. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're afraid the students will figure it out. And, you know, they're spelled the same, and that helps. <laughs> I think there's a lot of potential for nightmares involving you writing on the board, because written language in dreams is very unstable. It's actually a technique for noticing that you're dreaming if you want to get into lucid dreaming. You just build a habit of reading things twice, because it will almost always change in a dream. So I can just imagine you're writing something on the board in a dream, and then you go back to read it, and it's completely different than what mm. you had just had. That would be like my field notes. <laughs> uh, I think that's just a proof of transformations. <laughs> you can either know a vowel's frontness or its ATR value. You can't know both. <laughs> or its tone. That's a myth. I was going to say, I think we dispensed with that earlier. We got 
read it to a couple episodes back, didn't yeah. we? Oh, shoot. I missed that one. <laughs> no, wait. I was there. <laughs> well, have you ever had the dream that you open a classroom door and walk in and discover that it's your dissertation defense and you didn't prepare? And worse, the committee is a panel of your former graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Wow. That's, that's horrible. That's evidence of some kind of breakdown right there. <laughs> <laughs> It's like reverse imposter syndrome or something. I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, okay. I have another sort of general nightmare topic. Oddly enough, I've had dreams about being unprepared for classes or showing up with no pants. I, I guess that's a subset of being unprepared. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely but, a token of that type. But either I show up with no pants or I show up to the final exam not having attended the class all semester, but never both. But the odd thing about my academic nightmares is they always take place in my old high school. Mm. Even if I'm dreaming mm. about a graduate course, if I'm dreaming about calculus or whatever, it all takes place recognizably in my old high school building. Although most of the locations in my dreams are fantastical locations that are not real places, but my high school is always real. And in one of the dreams, I was BFFs with Tanya Harding, and she <laughs> went to my high school. <laughs> Did your knees escape unscathed? Well, apparently, yeah. I, mean, I don't remember any knee incidents at all. Well, because you don't remember them doesn't mean they didn't happen. <laughs> right. Well, and my knees were probably exposed if I forgot my pants. So. Uh, there you go. I had the unprepared finals dream, but for me, I'm sure I've had a few random uh, you know, nightmares related to school over the years, but I can't really think of any. But for years uh, in college... I had this one recurring dream about a Spanish class. I had placed into third semester Spanish out of high school, but it had been a couple of years. It was my first semester in college. I took the Spanish class. It was all in Spanish. I was not at all ready for that. So I dropped the class. And I had nightmares about the missed classes, missed language labs, missed finals. Even though I was taking French for two years, despite my poor pronunciation earlier, it was always the Spanish class that would get me. And then finally, my senior year, I actually took first and second semester Spanish, which were easy A's, and then placed out of that third semester, which is the class I dropped. And then the dream stopped. And so the only thing I can think is that the L2 part of my brain can really hold a grudge. <laughs> I was promised Spanish. I need Spanish. This French crap is not going to cut it. Well, if that's what the L2 part of your brain does, what is the H sub 2 part like? <laughs> That's the vocal fry part, I think. <laughs> Did you say neurological fry? That's what I thought you said. <laughs> I'm fairly sure the H2 was like a 50 or Tom. <laughs> lasted about eight milliseconds, you know. I remember one time that just on a lark, for no reason that I can think of, I wrote a haiku. And then I just left it laying around and someone submitted it to a contest. And then I won the contest, and the prize for the contest was serving on the editorial board of some crazy, twisted, insane journal and <laughs> associated with it. And then I was on these podcasts, and it just all went really, really south from there. So wait, you didn't submit the haiku? No. <laughs> no. No. Your children? I didn't think you actually wrote it. <laughs> I did write it. You did? Okay. I just thought it was yeah. submitted in your name. Since I know the details of the story, I just like to say, thank you, Kian. Kian, <laughs> <laughs> constructor of nightmares. <laughs> As we said before, live in the dream. Make sure Kian knows to listen to this episode. <laughs> 
I feel a little sad because I don't have academic nightmares. I just have nightmares about car crashes or monsters. How is that not academic? <laughs> <laughs> the car crash part is pretty far from most academia. The monsters don't they happen in your old high school or something? No. <laughs> I'm more inclined to think of my academics in terms of train wrecks. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I think that car crash might just be a metaphor. Yeah. Your overly linguistical brain, the car crash is a metaphor for the potential for your career to be derailed or your next big project to fail or the Specgram book not to take off. Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Way to do a pep talk, Trey. (laughs) It is my specialty. (laughs) And then the monsters, of course, (laughs) that was just your concern about coming on the podcast. (laughs) Actually, I think the monsters could be proto Indo European. Yeah. <laughs> the monsters. Ooh, wow. Yeah, that was an H5 right there. I think one of the scariest kind of monsters I could imagine would be like a gigantic protozoan. They would probably speak proto Indo European, right? Because proto whatever. It does match the proto something Ian. Yeah, I think the Zoan language family is sort of off further to the east, but I'm not sure. But it's perfect logic for a dream, Jason. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So we wish all of our listeners sweet dreams tonight. And that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Thanks to our guests, Tim and Jason, for hanging out with me and the rest of the Ling Nerds. Join us next time when we will explore the use of natural language processing in cryptanalysis and discuss the ethics of using computational linguistics to determine the most promising burial vaults for grave robbers to break into. (laughs) (laughs) They just get weirder. Come on, cryptanalysis? It's hilarious. We got it. We got it. Actually, I did not get it until he said it. So I didn't either. I didn't either. I just thought he was being weird. Sorry. I totally got it. Okay. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> totally. I think you have to say totes. I totes got it. Totes. Totes. It scares me that you know that. Uh, I see things on the internet and I remember. The outtakes are actually better than the program. I didn't try to read this tongue twister out loud. I will not be pronouncing it. Oh, everyone has to take a turn. Nope. (laughs) Okay. So, Sherry? (laughs) It's time to live the nightmare. I want to hear the intro on the ukulele. All right, here you go. Was that scary enough? I think you should have stayed on that penultimate note. I think there was too much resolution. That reminded me of Fantasy Island. That's scary. That was good. That was a little scarier. Yeah, maybe the diamond seventh is too much. You just need a tritone. That's all. Oh, 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 okay, okay, okay. Here we go then. That sort of crossed over from scary into wacky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that immediately turns back into scary because wacky is just unnerving. Okay, maybe, that, maybe know, that's I, good then. We should be studying all this because I'm sure some ethnomusicologist out there is going, yeah, yeah. Look <laughs> at the spaces between the notes. That was pretty good. Now I know what it's like for people listening to linguist talk. And it's just like gibberish, 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 noise, 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 gibberish, 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 <laughs> noise, noise, noise. You left out the chomskis. <laughs> <laughs> See, now I'm stuck. 
thinking about ukulele land, and there's going to be some Nawa word ukultlan for it, and it's going to be scary. <laughs> they offended the gods and were dragged off into ukultlan. <laughs> All kinds of scary things can happen. So I'm just leaving the tape running in case you guys say something interesting. <laughs> That's it's never, never going to happen. That's what you do all the time, isn't it? Just in Pretty case. Pretty much. <laughs> I can play you some more ukulele music. Okay, but... it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> I can run upstairs and get my didgeridoo. Hey. I don't even know what a didgeridoo is. What 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 sort of thingy uh, are you? The Australian big long tube. Well, I I thought it was <laughs> yeah, it sounds kind of like that. Is it a wind, a wind instrument? It is. It's like a trumpet. It's basically, yeah, it's a proto-trumpet. A proto-trumpet. Okay. Hmm. It might actually be an ear trumpet. Okay. <laughs> As opposed to an ear trumpet, which is, yeah, or an ar- air trumpet. <laughs> well, look out. <laughs> that was H4. <laughs> <laughs> Who was playing? <laughs> That was multi-instrumentalist Dr. Sherry Wells Jensen. Was that throat singing? That's a didgeridoo. No, no, that was the didgeridoo. Yeah, this, didgeridoo. Is, this is throat singing. Age six. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, Sherry. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Though since I can do it, I'm less impressed. Jason, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Another one. Nice overtones. That's incredible. Yeah. That's H56.9. Your next podcast should just be a concert, throat singing, ukulele, and didgeridoo all together. (laughs) Tim knows many things. He's a very smart person. And vocal fry. (laughs) And vocal fry, yes. All the spoken portions of the podcast should be with vocal fry. <laughs> That's what I think. So basically, it's going to be an NPR episode. <laughs> so has anyone said anything interesting yet? Rigmarole, 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 rigmarole. Item number one. Anybody got anything else? Oh, that might do it.